the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 136, covering the week of August 27th through August 31st. 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, don't, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You want to find those things, just go on out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all of our social media buttons. Also, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday which includes a link to this podcast. Also, download our application. You can go to your favorite app store, Google Play, iTunes, and get our app, and you can have the Abbeville Institute on the go. It's free to do so, and you get a link, of course, in that app to this podcast. Also, all of our lectures, over 200 of those, and a a portable gateway to the website. Don't forget that we also exist on your generous contributions alone, so please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. You can donate monthly or annually. All that information is available on our website at the top of the page. It'll say don't, it'll say a support, and under that you'll have donor, uh, donor options, I think it says. And you click on that, and you've got all our donor options. And last but not least, we have got our conference on nullification and secession coming up in November, November 10th, 2018. All of the information is available on the website. It's going to be held in Dallas, Texas, and we've got some great speakers lined up. Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center, Jeff Dice from Mises Institute, uh, Dan Fisher, former gubernatorial candidate in Oklahoma, of course, Don Livingston, Alan Mendenhall, uh, a great legal scholar, and also Kirkpatrick Sale, who's the president of the Middlebury Institute and also author of Human Scale, uh, which is a fantastic book dealing with the size of states and the uh, ideal size of a state. Um, So it's not a conference to be missed. And, of course, again, all the information is available on our website. Time is running out to sign up, so please sign up. And if you do like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, That helps move the podcast up the list for people that are looking for something to listen to, and it'll help us get more listeners. So please do that as well. All right, well, let's talk about the theme for the week, which is essentially fake history. And uh, the last piece of the week was fake news and fake history, and I'll get into that. But the major problem we have in America today is how we remember the American past. And, of course, history itself is the remembered past. That's essentially what it is. I mean, if if you had to define history, how would you define it? I think that saying it's the remembered past is the most accurate way to do it. And all history, there's this new trend, as I've talked about in this podcast before, to call uh, certain certain parts of history memory studies or the historical profession memory studies. That's That's what all history is. All history is memory studies. And unfortunately, what you have today is the distortion of American memory. What you have primarily is, in the minds of many Americans, a conflict between noble egalitarians and evil elitists, no matter what period of time you're talking about. And these egalitarians are justified in attacking anything they see as elitist. Now, that's a distorted vision, and this, this takes place on the left and the right, you see. Um, and it's, 
it's dangerous in several ways. But most importantly, what you have is this belief that comes out of it that um, anything that's elitist is bad and anything that's non-elitist is good. Now, that could be true at times, but it can also be dangerous. And part of that is the hubris of democracy, the belief that everyone is equal in all ways. Now, this is not what the founding generation in intended by uh, some of the things they wrote. And, of course, they did believe in a certain amount of democracy, but not universal democracy. And they certainly believed in a certain amount of equality, but not universal egalitarianism. And to say that, this is where Mel Bradford gets into the heresy of equality with a capital E. It's not to criticize either, but it's to say that there's problems with this. And this is why you have people running around, tearing down statues, calling for the contextualization of history, calling for um, some type of movement to uh, change the way we view American history because they believe fundamentally that American history is bad, that the people that are the dominant figures in American history, particularly from the South, are bad. And by saying that they're bad, then there has to be a, there has to be a dichotomy. There has to be a counterweight to that. And so someone has to be good. So what you have are good guys and bad guys, and you have no effort to understand, which is what the point of history ultimately is to understand, and to understand the remembered past. Because some people remember history one way, and other people remember history another way, doesn't mean that either are necessarily wrong. But we have, of course, no more gray areas. It's all black and white. It's good guys versus bad guys. And then that becomes the narrative. And, of course, this is often fostered by a Marxist view of history, the Marxist dialectic, and that has been then uh, moved beyond economics and it's become cultural Marxism, the leveling of all cultures to, that, to, to make them the same, which is not, it's not true at all. Uh, one thing you can say about Western civilization is produce the greatest and highest level of culture in the history of man. Every civilization has its good parts and bad parts, and of course, Southern history is definitely a component of Western civilization. People all over the world recognize that and recognize Southern culture and society as something that was noble and beautiful. But if we just simply tear it down and demonize it and not explore what's true and valuable in that culture and that society and that civilization, we're doomed to a life that is cardboard, tasteless, flavorless. There's nothing to it. And I don't think people really understand what's going on ultimately. They just simply, and well-meaning people believe these things, right? It's, it's, well, I mean, there's this group that doesn't like this group, and so because this group was... I mean, they, they have a point, you know, maybe some people were bad, and so we, we're going to say, okay, well, well, we'll go along with what you're doing, but ultimately what you're doing is taking a point of weakness. And as we've seen throughout history, 
those that uh, are vanilla, those that will side with the radicals, will eventually get steamrolled by the radicals because they're going to come for you too. And we see that all the time. You know, the people that are moderate leftists get steamrolled by the radical leftists, and the, the they eat their own all the time. It's it's bound to happen because they're not radical enough. We saw it during the look. People think that that the United States is the French Revolution. I mean, that's that's really the turning point of all Western civilization. The French Revolution was a cataclysmic event, and we've never gotten out of it. I mean, the French Revolution produced all the nasty wars of the 19th century and the 20th century, and by default, the Cold War. Moving into the, and then the Cold War produced the War on Terror and all the things we're dealing with in the 21st century. This pushback against centralization, this destructive movement to, uh, to uh, take apart any vestiges of old society and old civilization, to remove it, destroy it, the French Revolution is the beginning of all that. Without question. So when you look at what's happening today, tearing down statues, well, the French did that too in the 17, late 1780s, early 1790s. The French did that too. They tore everything down from the old regime. And then, of course, there were French leaders who realized well, that's a bad idea, but it was not replaced with anything noble or good. It was replaced with a different type of regime and the high civilization, the culture that had made France what it was, which you have to remember in the 1790s or 1780s, before the French Revolution, France was arguably the most powerful country, kingdom, in Europe with one of the highest cultures. And all that was torn down in the name of liberty, fraternity, Egalité. It was all torn down. And this is essentially what we're seeing in America now. We're seeing the same type. It's just a longer process. Americans never had that cataclysmic upheaval, but they've done it gradually, which is in some ways much more dangerous. Of course, you can't discount the amount of people that were lost in the French Revolution and things that happened there. But it's an erasing of memory here in America that's, that's taking place. And it's, it's done subtly, but it's also done to make you feel bad about maybe you admire Robert E. Lee. Maybe you admire the founding generation. And you can say you admire those people. For years, you could say you admire those people, understanding that they had views that were different from our own in the modern era. But they were also members of a high civilization and a high culture, and they were noble people, and they had noble qualities, and there were things about them you should emulate. But that's not the case anymore. And part of that is a distortion of history. So when I started this, pod, started this episode, I talked about fake history. And all the pieces this week were part of that. So you start with the piece on Monday, revisiting the Cornerstone speech. The Cornerstone speech by Alexander Hamilton Stevens is often held up as the definitive example that the South was just a bunch of white supremacists and the counterweight to that would have to be that the North were not white supremacists and the North was fighting for something noble, whereas the South was fighting for something evil. But we all know, we all know that wasn't the case. Anyone that's a serious historian understands that in 1861, the North wasn't fighting for anything but the Union. 
And anyone that studied the North and the South understands that the South did not have racial views that were different from the North. Certainly, there were individuals in the North that believed in racial equality, that were not quote-unquote white supremacists, but they were the vast minority in 1860 and 61. You can find statements all over the place from Northerners, even those who were often held up as the grand examples of progressive Northerners, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had racist things to say. That was the prevailing climate, both North and South, in the middle of the 19th century. So why is one section said to be one way, and the other, by, by default, then, the other section has to be the other way? And as, this, as Michael Martin points out in this piece, this racial scientific racism that's often said, well, this is you know, coming out of the South. Actually, all that came out of the North. If you read Larry Tise's wonderful book on pro-slavery ideology, he talks about this. All the, the foundation for pro-slavery ideology came out of Northern theological instruction, it came out of northern institutions. It was the North, after all, that first started talking about, uh, a, or first started codifying a pro-slavery ideology because it was the North, after all, that was going through the upheavals of ending slavery first. And the North was allowed to do this gradually. Martin has put out a little chart that shows, yes, northern states did start abolishing slavery as early as the 18th century. But what's often not talked about is that many of these northern states did not actually end slavery until many, many decades later. In fact, New Jersey still had slavery at the end of the war. There's actually a, uh, a wonderful website that documents this. It's, uh, just, it's, in, it's Slave North. Um, just look for Slave North. I can't remember if it's .org or .com, but uh, the... Individual put this together years ago, went out and documented all the hypocrisy of the North when it came to the institution of slavery and also this uh, racism that's often uh, you know, foisted on the South, that the South was the only place. As Stevens himself said, he said, look, I'm not saying anything that people didn't believe North and South. I, I wasn't saying anything that was unique about the Confederate Constitution that was different from the U.S. Constitution. Was the U.S. Constitution somehow racially egalitarian, whereas the Confederate Constitution was not? Was the Union government somehow racially egalitarian when the Confederate government was not? Absolutely not. In most states of the North, black Americans did not have very many rights. In fact, they couldn't even live in some of the northern states, as Leon Litvak has documented in his North of Slavery. They couldn't sit on juries. They couldn't vote. They could, their property ownership was restricted. So how is that somehow noble, whereas the South is ignoble? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous, but this is what we've gotten to with fake history, with black and white history, with no shades of gray, with memory studies that are designed to erase the memory of one because they call it evil or bad, whereas the other is often given a free pass. Now, I say that because historians know this. And when you press them on to say, well, yeah, the North was racist too, but, uh, but that doesn't matter because you know we've got all these neo-Confederates running around that just want to say something that's not true about the South. They want to they say things that weren't true about the South. So we got to attack them. And we'll, we'll contextualize the North later. We'll, we'll worry about that later. 
In fact, I've always thought that what needed to happen, as I've said on this on this podcast before, we need a Northern Studies department in every college and university in America because it was the North, actually, that was the odd section throughout much of American history. It's the North that was driving many things, even as Ties points out. Southerners really didn't have a pro-slavery ideology because they didn't think about it. It just was. It was just there. They didn't have to think about these things. And it wasn't until they were under attack that they started to come up with this stuff, and they were modeling their, their views on what Northerners had said for years. For years. So when people cite this cornerstone speech, and again, it's one speech by one individual, and that supposedly speaks to the entire South for every Southerner, but yet you can't say that about the North. You, no, no, no. You can't just say that one person spoke for the North uh, because, you know, that's that's not accurate. I mean, you can't say that, uh, and, and of course you can't bring up Lincoln's own views on race because he, he evolved over time. He changed. He changed. You know, that, that Lincoln became different. I don't think he ever did. Most Northern, I mean, look, Benjamin Wade was one of the most vicious racists you'd ever find, but that doesn't matter. So within that vein, you have the, the piece on uh, Tuesday, Union at All Costs. It was a book review of that same title. Um, the review is uh, by uh, Samuel Mitchum. Wrote a great book on, on Nathan Bedford Forrest. But uh, this particular book, Union at All Costs, it's, a, it's a, from a quote-unquote amateur historian, uh, John M. Taylor, and uh, Mr. Taylor has, I've seen Mr. Taylor a couple of times at some events, and he always said, have you, have you read my book? And I said, yes, you know, it's always, I, I always said, no, I haven't read it yet. It's always on my things to do. And I promised him we'd do a review. And then out of the blue, uh, Sandy Mitchell sends this uh, review, and it's great. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. The book is actually very good. Um, it is a book that gets into this, to what was actually going on in 1860 and 61, the Union at all costs. And it was um, Lincoln's, vision to save the Union, no matter what it took to do so. That was his driving force in 1861 when he decided to push for the provisioning of Fort Sumter and the occupation of Fort Pickens. This is what Lincoln was doing. He understood what was going to happen. He understood the South would be pushed into a corner, would have to react. And if they didn't, they would look weak. They would look insincere in their effort for independence. So Lincoln started the war, and he, the, the cost of that was the Constitution. The cost of that was the original Federal Republic over time. That was the cost of the war, union at all cost, subjugating a section of the United States. And as some people even in the North wanted to do it, I mean, essentially, there was some discussion about exterminating them. I and mean, this is what people say today. Now, that was a very small segment of the population, but, I mean, Sherman basically held this view during the war. Now, after the war, he changed his tune a little bit, but during the war, he, assert, he essentially believed that Southern civilians were also subjected to the war, should be subjected to the war. Um, and there were, again, some Northerners that believed this, but after the war, I mean, nowadays you have this view, and I see it all the time on social media, the South should have all, all people in the South that didn't side with the Union should have been wiped out. Now, who is really in favor of genocide in that particular case? I mean, when you ask, when you say that, what you're advocating is genocide. <laughs> but yet, th th that's okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to talk about wiping out a whole group of people, as long as they're bad people. And But who says they're bad people? Well, I do. Those are bad people. Well, that's 
That's hubris right there. But that's also, um, you know, the, people shouldn't get away with that. Nobody calls them out on this. If they said that, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, that's what we should do. The chants begin, the group mentality begins, and no one calls anyone out for saying, these people should have been wiped out. Really? If anybody else had said, if anybody else says that about any other group of people, I mean, does, any, does anybody stand for that? And this is how silly this stuff has become, but this is where we are because of fake history, because you have good guys and bad guys. And the bad guys have to be eliminated by whatever means necessary. And their history has to be, uh, has to be determined to be um, or designated evil, bad. And that's okay. These people have to be ashamed. It's one of the most evil things you can do to a person is make them feel ashamed of where they come from, genetically. To make them feel ashamed of their people, the people that produce them, to make them hate their own family. That is evil. Evil. And there's no other way, there's no other word to use for it but that. And so when you get to Wednesday's piece, written by yours truly, Robert E. Lee versus Twitter historians, this is essentially what's going on. And the funny thing about this, and I, and I detail this in the piece, and so we've talked about fake history, but one thing we have to understand about this is that a lot of the attacks made on Southerners are based on half-truths and poor historical scholarship. And so one of the books that's often pointed out to show Lee as a bad guy, is this, is this uh, Elizabeth Pryor book, Reading the Man. And what I show in this particular book is that the people that cite this book don't even read it themselves, number one, I don't think, or they skim it, and because they think, well, everybody in the fashionable uh, historical profession has said this is the best book, um, so I'm just going to cite it and say this is it. But when you actually go through and look at the book and look at her sources, just take the time to go and look at the notes. She cites everything. A lot of her conclusions are drawn from one letter. And she even contradicts herself within two sentences. And I, I detail this in the book. Um, and, of course, she tears down people like Douglas Southall Freeman for being too much of a Lee partisan. But yet, she does the exact same thing, just in the reverse. And somehow her book is correct and Freeman is wrong. And she omits things on purpose, I firmly believe, to make her point. And so I document you know, everything that's said about Lee. You know, he's, he's, he's a racist. He's a slave owner. He, he was brutal to his slaves. He, was, uh, he supported the Ku Klux Klan. These are things that are often trumped, you know, trumped about now that, uh, and bandied about, that Lee was, was these things. Um, and there's no proof for any of this stuff conclusively. Lee denied, for example, ever abusing any slave in his care. Denied it three times in private letters. And when he had the Custis will, the will stipulated certain things that had to be done, and Lee was interested in maintaining the provisions of that particular will. The will said itself that the slave should be freed if the estate was solvent, if not within five years. And Lee was doing that, just that. And yet, he's demonized for that. Because he didn't immediately free the slaves. Now, of course, even Pryor admits that manumitting the slaves would have been very difficult 
because that was actually illegal in Virginia at the time. But of course, a court eventually decides in 1862 that the estate has to be settled and the slaves have to be freed. And then Lee used his own money to do it and worked to prevent these people from being put into slavery in in, in Virginia after they were freed. Is that the work of a pro-slavery ideologue? Is this a guy, Lee, of course, the uh, man who favored gradual emancipation during the war in return for uh, military service? He was one of the leaders in this. Is that the work of a pro-slavery ideologue? The guy that said that uh, this dealing with this estate was a miserable legacy? Is that the work of a pro-slavery ideologue? Certainly, certainly Lee was held racial, held racial views that the majority of the Americans uh, at the time held. I mean, again, this is where we get into, well, if Lee held these views, then nobody else did uh, in the North. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. So we hold him to a different standard. Why? Because you cannot be pro-Lee and get a job or have thousands, tens of thousands of Twitter followers like the Twitter historians do because it's groupthink. They're the ones that are really boxed in to a myth. Some of this has to do with a stupid article written in the Atlantic, but it all goes back to, to prior. And then there's the charge, of course, that Lee was a traitor, and, and I get into that in the piece, and that I don't need to uh, rehash that here. But certainly, uh, that's one of the charges made, that Lee was a traitor, and of course, as a traitor, he should be uh, vilified. But it's a little more complex. Even Pryor admits that. But somehow, one of these Twitter historians says, you know, uh, Lee, uh, for a guy who hated secession, he sure did fight for it pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, Well, Lee didn't agree with nullification and secession, and he only did it because Virginia seceded. That was it. And somehow we think that Lee should have made a different choice. He agonized over it. Now, of course, Pryor says, well, there were other choices available. Other, His other family members stayed with the Union. Well, this is true. They did. I guess you could say there was another choice available, but Lee was not willing in an honor Lee was an honorable man. He was not willing to fight his own family. And by his family he meant his countrymen of Virginia. He wasn't willing to do it. He was honorable. His sense of duty prevented him from doing that. And then there's the charge, of course, that Lee um, was somehow turning a blind eye to any racial violence around him as president of Washington College. The evidence is all there that he he did not turn a blind eye, that he actually uh, expelled students who engaged in these type of activities. The faculty notes, the faculty minutes show this, but somehow he turned a blind eye. This is the statements that are made from these Twitter historians who are really quite stupid, in fact, to say these things. Because they haven't actually gone out and looked at the sources. They just think, well, Pryor said this, so it's got to be true because it agrees with me. It agrees with me. You see, that's what it comes down to. It agrees with me, so it's correct. I think it's important to look at all information critically. Was Freeman correct? Was Pryor correct? It's important to look at these things critically. This is what the historian is there to do, to understand, not to condemn, but to understand. And I think you can understand Lee's dilemma in 1861. You can understand Lee's position in the 1850s in trying to deal with the Cussis estate. You can understand Lee's position after the war and what he was going through there. And the story is always a little more complex than what the Twitter historians tell you. So you can go out and read that piece too. And again, it's it's too long to detail in this, in this uh, podcast and all the things I said about it. But Lee is being unfairly demonized because of presentism, 
and that's a problem. And then the last couple of pieces for the week get into this idea of how history is used as a leftist weapon. I mean, this is Gail Jarvis saying, look, I mean, you can't, the things that are being done, the things that are being said by the mainstream media, including Fox News, as Paul Yarborough points out, which is supposedly the conserv- quote-unquote conservative news channel, they're really not. And they certainly don't like the South. I mean, Lincoln is their guy, and Lincoln was never conservative. What was he conserving? Not the original Federal Republic. He was conserving a new union, as the Republicans openly said in the 1860s. It was a new union. They were going to remake America. And they have, slowly but surely, remade America at the expense of the original Federal Republic. But you have this narrative against all your mainstream media, newspapers, websites, news websites, they all have a narrative that the South is bad, that Southerners are bad, that Southern history is awful. I've documented that over and over on this podcast, over and over in our writings on the website. I mean, this is the this there is no other group in America today besides the Abbeville Institute that is pro-Southern. And there's no political organization that's pro-Southern. And it's funny because somebody mentioned on social media that we were called a leftist organization. Uh, it just shows you that people have no understanding of what's really going on. Why are we leftists? Because we attacked Dinesh D'Souza. Why are we leftists? Because we produced a piece written by yours truly that was sympathetic to Jimmy Carter. So we're leftists because we produced a piece by Ben Jones, who was a Democrat in Congress. But yet we're leftists, and we're leftists because of that. You see, these people can't get out of their own way for their own lack of understanding of what these terms even mean. But that's the political climate in which we live. The South has no champion. Uh, We're going to run a piece next week on voter ID, and as the piece points out, it was Jimmy Carter who was in favor of having voter ID. I mean, so you, you you, you can't get around the fact that what we're being bombarded with by Fox News, by the mainstream media, by, is this same narrative. The South is bad. The North is good. And that fuels these attacks. That fuels this French Revolutionary-style purge that's taking place in America. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. I mean, we're, we're leading to a, a, a 1984 scenario where you have to rewrite the history to, to comport with whatever the acceptable, fashionable opinion is from the central authority. And the central authority could not just be government, it can also be acceptable opinion coming from universities and colleges, coming from uh, your media sources. That's acceptable opinion, but that's where we are in 2018, and that's why we exist here at the Institute. That's why this podcast exists, why our website exists. That's why we do our conferences. Because there is another side to this. There are are people out there that seek to understand, not to condemn, to find what's valuable in the South. As Winston Churchill said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, but essentially Robert E. Lee was the greatest American that ever lived. This is what Winston Churchill said. H.L. Mencken is often uh, bandied about as this guy who made statements that would call into question Donald Trump called Southern Civilization the grandest that America has ever produced. The greatest thing America ever produced was Southern Civilization. 
You know, would would George Washington be George Washington without being from the South? Absolutely not. How about Thomas Jefferson? How about James Madison or James Monroe? Or take your pick of your Southern founders. They wouldn't be who they are if they were not from the South. Of course, Northerners like to make them good Yankees. George Washington <laughs> saw New Englanders as a separate people, an alien people. He didn't, like, he didn't care for them too much. But that's often left out, you see. So we've always had these cultural differences. It's just that now, as, as again, I, I said this on, on this podcast before, as our friend and colleague Kerry Roberts says, if you want to know what New England running America looks like, you're living in it. It's miserable because New Englanders have almost always been miserable. They've never liked anything. It's miserable. So if you want to know what it's like for New England to run America, welcome to 2018. And thankfully, there are people out there that are pushing back. And one thing that was said is, why do we push back? Why, why waste our time pushing back against the Twitter historians? Because people want somebody to punch back. They want somebody to push back and say, you know what? This is wrong. And this is why we do what we do. Because it's not just about putting out a positive view of the South, which is what we also do. But it's about pushing back on um, inaccuracies and half-truths and lies and historians that lack contextualization and understanding. You have to push back because who else is going to do it if you don't? The record has to be there. I hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. <laughs>